Hello and welcome to One Light, Dialogues on Religion with Dr. Farhad Shafti and your host, Veronica Polo. In this series of talks, Farhad and I discuss the role of religion and spirituality using the Islamic tradition as our framework, while simultaneously searching for universal truths that go beyond religious affiliation. Join us on our journey to untangle common misconceptions and deepen our understanding of the monotheistic tradition and beyond. Oh, it's already recording. (laughs) I was waiting for the little pop-up that says, do you agree to be recorded? Okay. Salaamu Alaikum. Alaikum Salaam wa Rahmatullah. So in today's episode, we will be talking about Sunnah. And as I understand it, sunnah is the accepted set of practices and beliefs of the Muslim community as passed on from the Prophet and the companions. So how would you define that? Okay, thank you, Veronica. I think this is a very important topic that we are going to talk about today. I mean, I'm glad that you asked me how do I define it? Because as you know, there are differences of views about what sunnah is. I will define it the way that I have learned it works for us as people who want to uh, look at sunnah as one of the sources of understanding Islam. Other people may, may disagree with me. And for sure, when you look at the way that some schools of thought are defining it, it may not be exactly the way that that I see it. So I just said that introduction to make it clear that I am not talking just now on behalf of any particular school of thought. I'm talking about it the way that I understand it, which can be similar to some and not very similar to some others. Let me start with a definition that uh, I think you suggested. I think you said something like, it's about practices and beliefs that we have received from the companions of the prophet. Is, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if I take what you said, like a picture, and then try to edit it a little bit to make it close to what I'm thinking, I will edit it like this. I will say, yes, it is definitely about practices, but I would not consider beliefs to be part of sunnah. Uh, Sunnah, in my understanding, is all about the practice, not about beliefs. You can even derive that from the meaning of the word itself, which is about a path, about the way people do things. It's not about beliefs. So the first thing I would say is that, yes, it's about practices, but it is not about beliefs. The second thing I would say is that it's not about all kinds of practices. It's about practices that are religious in nature. Okay. okay. So that, that's the second thing I would say. The third thing I would say is that, yes, it has come from the companions, but the companions themselves should receive it from the prophets. So mm-hmm. the origin of that needs to come from the prophet. Okay. Mm-hmm. And a bracket that I can open here is that many of the part of the sunnah, that for us Muslims, we say they are coming from the prophet, in fact, they are coming from Abrahamic prophets, in particular, Prophet Ibrahim himself. Much of that sunnah is actually quite similar to what came from the past prophets. The fourth thing that I want to say is that, yes, it has arrived to us, 
but how it has arrived to us. It's interesting because we talk about the practices of Prophet Muhammad, and he's a figure that lived so long ago. So how exactly is that preserved in a way that's still meaningful or useful today? Okay, very good. So let me now try to define sunnah the way that I see it and the way that I have learned it. I emphasize the way I have learned it because much of what I'm going to talk about, about sunnah just now, uh, is what I learned from one of the great scholars, contemporary scholars of Islam, Amin Ahsan Islay and Javid Ahmed Ghamidi, who are Indian and, of course, Pakistani scholars. So Amin Ahsan Islay was at the time where partition has not made yet. And mm-hmm. then he, he, he was, of course, after that, a Pakistani scholar. And Javed Ahmed Ghamadi, who is contemporary and, of course, from Pakistan. I very much uh, find their understanding and explanation of Sunnah to be helpful. I may not particularly be insisting on some of the very detailed things that they say. I may be, have a bit more flexible understanding on those details. But overall, I'm very much comfortable with the way that they have understood it. So I try to explain that. Sunnah are those religious practices that have reached us through practicing them by every generation of Muslims, started from the time of the Prophet to our time. Now, if you consider the definition that I tried to provide here, that takes care of the question that you asked, which is, well, it was 1400 years ago. How do we know that the Prophet did it this way or did it that way? Mm -hmm. My answer to that is that only those, as I said, only those practices can be considered as sunnah, that the generations of Muslims, with no exception, have passed it to the next generation, meaning there's no disagreement about it. Good example I can give you, for instance, uh, how many units of prayer, how many rik'ah of prayer you do for your maqrib prayer, sunset prayer? How many? Three. Three. Find me a Muslim who would say, no, it's actually two. Or no, it's actually four. Mm -hmm. Where is this coming? It is definitely not in the Quran. We know that. Now, some people by mistake will say, well, well, it's coming from Hadith. Mm -hmm. But I'm asking you again, how did you learn, Veronica, how to pray? Imitation. Who taught that to you? Other Muslims. There we go. I learned it from my parents and some of my older cousins. And this is the same for every other Muslim that I have seen. In the lectures that I had before, and I wanted to explain the concept of sunnah, I always start by this. I would ask them, okay, from where have you learned how to pray? And people would say, oh, from my uncle, from my teacher, from the imam in the mosque, from the parents. I say, is there anybody here who learned how to pray from hadiths? Normally, nobody raised hands. Mm -hmm. So this is the point that I'm trying to make. We think that we have learned, for instance, how many rik'ah, how many units the sunset mark of a prayer is. We think we have learned it from hadith, but we haven't learned it from hadith. 
They have learned mm-hmm. it from the past generation. And if you ask the past generation, they say we have learned it from the past generation. And it goes on and on and on and on. And then we can, I think, confidently and safely assume that it will reach to the Prophet himself. In fact, I would argue that it will be very difficult for a Muslim to try to learn how to pray just by reading hadith. Mm-hmm. So remember, we are not talking about reading it from the books where they are explaining how to read prayer. I consider mm-hmm. that to also be learning from the past generation, you know. But just looking at hadith, let's go and look at the book of Bukhari and Muslim and then decide how we need to read prayer. I don't think people will find it very easy because information there is not there in a categorized and for teaching purposes. So how do you know how to pray? And my argument is that I haven't yet seen a Muslim who say, oh, I just learned how to pray by reading hadith. I I cannot deny that there can be individuals like that, good for them. But I think for almost all Muslims, the answer is I learned it from my father, my uncle, my mother, cousin, boss, teacher. So what I'm trying to say is that there is... Other than hadith, we are facing another source of understanding religion. This source of understanding religion is sunnah. It's not hadith. We have learned from this without even us noticing it that much and without giving it due credit. Well, when people say sunnah, oftentimes it's interchangeable in their minds with hadith. They don't differentiate. And that's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the point that I'm trying to make. That you are, you are absolutely right. <clears throat> Some Muslims believe that Sunnah and Hadith are the same. Some Muslims say no. Actually, Sunnah and Hadith are different. However, to understand the Sunnah, you need to un- read the Hadith. So Hadith will tell you what is the Sunnah. Mm-hmm. And I have learned that these both are wrong, are not mm-hmm. rational way of understanding these. I have learned that the correct understanding is that hadith is hadith, it's a source on itself, and then sunnah is sunnah. And sunnah can be understood only from sunnah, by learning from the past generation, okay? Who taught me eating with right hand? Well, I I learned it from my father. So sunnah are those practices, religious practices, that the prophet established among his generation. Some of these religious practices were even established from before. They were even coming from Prophet Abraham. But the prophet established these among his generation, and then the generation at the time, the companions of the prophet, practiced them. And them practicing them naturally passed knowledge of those practices to the next generation. And it just came down and down and down, and it reached us. And we are passing it to our children. It goes to them. And it continues to go like that. It is not at all imaginable that at some point in the history, suddenly the whole generation of Muslims getting it wrong. The Maghrib prayer, for instance, was five rik'ah, five units, and suddenly everybody got it wrong and they thought it was three units. It's not possible. It is not something that you would rationally consider as a significant risk or possibility. So 
the difference between Sunnah and Hadith are in a number of things. Number one, Sunnah is all about practices, while Hadith can be about anything. You can have a Hadith that is about practices, you can have a Hadith that is about beliefs, you can have a Hadith that is just about reporting of something historical that happened at the time of the Prophet. You can have a Hadith that is trying to explain a verse of the Quran. So Hadith can be about anything. Sunnah is only about one thing, and that is practice. That is number one. Number two, Hadith is being transferred to us by very few individuals, very, very few individuals in each generation. I will elaborate in this, on this later. But Sunnah has reached us through the practice of every member of the generation of Muslims, every member of practicing generation of Muslims. That's the other thing. Sunnah in nature is religious, is about religious practices. Hadith in nature may include something that is not even religious. Like the appearance of the prophet, what he does. Exactly, yeah. So that was the appearance of the prophet. Or the narration says that in that day, the prophet moved from this point to that point. These are not religious in practice. They're talking about religious figure, but they're not religious in practice. You don't learn anything about religion from them. It's still very interesting, but don't learn anything about religion from them. So as you can see, Sunnah and Hadith are different in terms of content, in terms of category, and in terms of the way that they have reached us. Mm -hmm. The conclusion then that I will take from here is that after, of course, considering rationality and intellect as the initial source of understanding everything, once we pass that, The next two sources of understanding Islam, independent sources, will be Quran and Sunnah. Sunnah with a definition that I just said, okay? Who says we need to believe in the angels? Quran says. So as a Muslim, you will not question that. Who says that purification is a way for success in the hereafter? Quran says. As a Muslim, you will not question that. Who says Maghrib prayer is three rak'ah? Sunnah says. As a Muslim, you will not question that. Who says eating with right hand is better? Sunnah. As a Muslim, you will not question that. But using that example, that's not a religious practice, is it? That's confusing me a little bit. It is a religious practice because eating by the right hand is considered by the Prophet to have to do something with your purity, uh, purification. It is a symbolic practice. One may argue that, well, maybe it's just about physical purification, but I, I think it is part of also respecting the food, respecting the, the, the ni'mah, respecting the blessing that God has given you. Just like when you shake hand with somebody, you, know, you normally shake hand with right hand, not the left hand. That's not because your left hand is dirty. It's because it's a custom that when you shake hand with right hand, it's more respectful. It is something like that when it comes to eating food. Uh, so yeah, when, when you eat with your right hand, it is like your intention 
is that uh, you're respecting the blessing that God has given you, okay? So, yes, in that sense, it will be religious. Another example, maybe better example, that I think you, you may not argue with that one, would be saying the name of God when you want to start your food. Or, for instance, saying Salamun Alaikum to somebody. Where is this Salamun Alaikum coming from? Okay, the source of it is Sunnah, because that was the way that people at the time of the Prophet used to greet each other, the believers in particular. So the Sunnah are those practices that in nature are religious. Prophet wanted to establish them as religious practice that people should follow and observe, and it reached us through generations. So I want to emphasize on this line that I just added right now as well, that the Prophet wanted to establish it as a religious practice. Because, for instance, the Prophet used to read particular number of non-obligatory prayers every day. But we know that he never meant for these to be fixed and established for all Muslims. The mm -hmm. recommendation was that, yes, try to read some non-obligatory prayers. The very reason that we see we do not have fixed number of obligatory prayers agreed upon by all Muslims, and every school of thought recommends a different number of non-obligatory prayers, that itself shows us that the Prophet never wanted to establish this among Muslims. He himself would read it in different ways. Okay, mm -hmm. so let me summarize again. It needs to be practice. It needs to be religious. It needs to be something that the Prophet wanted to establish as a religious practice. It needs to be reached to us through continuous, uninterrupted practice of generation of Muslims, one after the other one. Okay. Let me also add something else here without trying to make it too confusing. Even some of the rulings that are in the Quran the origin of it could be coming from the Sunnah, Sunnah of Abrahamic religions. Uh, in the Quran, for instance, when the rules about marriage and divorce are being said, mm -hmm. then this verse comes that says, in this way, I am guiding you, I hear meaning God, I am guiding you to the Sunan al-Lazina min qablikum, Sunan, the practices of those before you. Mm -hmm. So scholars like Jabir Ahmad Qamadi argue, although I do not have any insist one way or another, but they argue, for instance, that even some of the directives of the Quran are part of Sunnah, and the Quran is simply re-emphasizing them and clarifies them. Otherwise, they, they, even those were originated from the Sunnah that most probably was coming from before the time of the Prophet. So I would like to talk a little bit about hadith as well uh, and explain why hadith cannot be an independent source of understanding Islam. But before that, I want to make sure that my explanation of sunnah was reasonably clear. I do appreciate that it needs 
more elaboration and question and answer and discussion. But if there is anything there that you feel wasn't very clear. Yeah, I mean, you make a very useful distinction. And I think that the listeners who are not aware of that um, will be very interested because if you think about it, it makes sense. Now, I do have questions about what exactly do you mean by religious practices? And you've addressed that to a certain point, but I think that conversation could be taken further. And I wouldn't mind talking about the negative aspects of overly focusing or trying to recreate this Sunnah lifestyle that a lot of Muslims try to to create, sometimes almost artificially. If you allow me, I would like to, because I did say that much of what I'm saying about Sunnah is uh, something that I have learned from uh, scholars like Amin Ahsan Islahi and Javed Ahmed Ghamri. If you allow me, I would like to read a few lines from the book Islam, A Comprehensive Introduction by Javed Ahmed Ghamidi, so that I make sure that it is as clear as possible. Is it okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm reading uh, basically this translation uh, of what Ghamidi has written. So he writes that by Sunnah is meant that tradition of Prophet Abraham's religion, which the Prophet Muhammad instituted among his followers as the religion after reviving and reforming it and after making certain additions to it. Like not eating pork, for example? Yeah, I mean, uh, any tradition that comes from the Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Muhammad would make any adjustments as needed and then add something to it as well. I think not eating pork is something that Jews also consider so I exactly yeah, exactly and actually there's in terms of normative rules jews and muslims have a lot in common compared to yeah. to christians who moved away early on when gentiles incorporated what would become the christian faith but there's a lot of similarities like not eating pork the emphasis on modesty also the importance of purity yeah, uh, ritual purity and, and things like this. So there's a lot of similarities. So we will refer to some of it. So what Ramadi has written here later on in, in the chapter that he talks about Sunnah, he's uh, explaining seven principles that he says can help with realizing what is and what is not Sunnah. So obviously we don't have time to read all of it, and this is available if people want to read it in detail. But I just read the first sentence of each principle. So the first principle, only that thing can be a sunnah, which is religious by nature and status. Principle number two, the sunnah entirely relates to practical affairs of life. As I said, it doesn't include beliefs. The third principle, even things which belong to the practical sphere cannot be regarded sunnah if they are initiated by the Quran. So if the Quran has initiated something, then although Muslims are practicing it, by definition, you would not call it a sunnah. A new sunnah is not constituted by merely observing some practices in an optional manner. So the example of that would be the number of non-obligatory prayers, that once we understand that the intention was not to fix them, we should not consider fixing number of non-obligatory prayers to be part of sunnah. Uh, the fifth principle, things which merely state 
some aspects of human nature cannot be regarded as sunnah. And he here gives example of, for instance, not eating from the meat of beasts or wild birds, arguing that this is something that normally every human being considers as not appropriate. The sixth principle, those guidelines of the Prophet also cannot be regarded as sunnah, the nature of which is fully sufficient to show that the Prophet never wanted to constitute them as sunnah. Then he explains, for instance, when you sit down on, in prayers, what you want to say there, there's a flexibility there. And we cannot consider particular statements to be part of sunnah when you sit down and read that part of your prayer. The seventh and last principle, just as the Quran is not validated through khabar wahid which means individual narrations, the sunnah is also not validated through it. The sunnah is an independent source of religion. As I said, it needs to come from the consensus of the ummah, one generation to the other generation. And the last thing I want to read very quickly, because I think this is helpful, is the list of the items of sunnah as, as Qamadi has written them. So I cannot say I, this is my work, I, that I agree with all those details, but just to complete uh, what I'm quoting. So it refers to lists of sunnah as such. Worship rituals like how to read prayers, zakah, fasting, hajj and umrah, animal sacrifice, uh, and the takbirs during the days of tashriq, which is for hajj. A social sphere like rules of marriage and divorce, the abstention from uh, coitus, which is basically sexual relationship during the menstrual and puerperal period. Uh, then dietary things like prohibition of pork, blood, meat of dead animals, animals slaughtered in the name of idols, for instance. As you can see, these are the things that the Quran actually have stated. But according to Ramadi, because you can find background of this in the religious practice of Abrahamic religions, therefore they are still in the category of sunnah. And you can see that the Quran is just clarifying and emphasizing that. Other things then goes like slaughtering the animal in the prescribed manner. And then there's a long list of customs and ethics, like remembering God's name when eating, using the right hand, even things like cleaning the nose, cleaning the mouth, cleaning teeth, cleaning the body. And he argues that although these are physical cleanness, but the way that the Prophet has established them, you can see that he considered them as part of your religious duty. And the list of that goes on, and much of that is actually in common with the followers of the other Abrahamic religions, in particular Judaism. Mm -hmm. So... Everything that you were mentioning, Gamadi considered sunnah practices that have been passed down and should be incorporated by a practicing Muslim. Yes. Now, what I want to add to this, uh, and this is where uh, I try to bring my own view and opinion here, is that obviously there are some items there that you would argue that as a Muslim, if you don't do them, then you know, we cannot say exactly you are following the Sharia of the Prophet. For instance, prayer, praying, okay? So if somebody decides not to pray at all, well, I can never say that that person is not Muslim. I can never say that. But what I can say is that, well, that person is not really following the Sharia of the Prophet because prayer is one of the main parts of the 
uh, you know, practices of religion. But for instance, take into account eating with the right hand. Okay, so mm -hmm. as you know, in many European countries, they take the knife in the right hand and the fork in the left hand. Mm -hmm. And I can see many young generation Muslims that are used to this, and they find it very difficult to do it the other way around. Some of them make the cut with the knife, and then they take with the right hand and eat it. Some just eat with the left hand because they find it easier. Mm -hmm. If somebody does not follow that, I would not say, oh, you're not following the Sharia of the prophets, because the nature of this, in terms of the importance of it, is totally different from the nature of, for instance, fasting or praying. So in my mind, I distinguish that things that you would say, well, it is sunnah, but it is also something that you can consider an obligation for a Muslim if you want to follow the Sharia of the prophet, and the things that are recommended or highly recommended, but if you do not do them, I cannot say you're not following the Sharia of the Prophet. Right, and then there's the case of people who are left-handed, and I know of families in which, I'm talking about a specific case that I know of, the father who was very traditional and thought it was critical that his child eat with the right hand would try to force the child to use the right hand. And the mother that was a little bit more relaxed would say, look, it doesn't come naturally to him to use his right hand. Don't force him to eat with his right hand. He's left-handed. And so this is when I feel that certain insistences to use or to follow the sunnah become problematic because you're not adapting it to the situation. As long as you know that the intention is to respect the food or to act in a manner that is pure, if that's the intention, then that's fine. And then actually it shouldn't be a problem to switch hands. But what happens often is that, again, it's the form that becomes the rule and the intention is lost. Uh, because from what I understand, in Arabian society, they wiped their bum. <laughs> trying to think about how to say this in a better way. But when they had to go do their necessities, they would clean up with their left hand. And therefore, it was just very practical to eat with the right hand. So it the intention arose from just a practice that was already in place. So what happens when you don't use your left hand anymore to wipe necessarily? Or, you know, you're very careful about washing your hands with soap before and after. So do you still continue to do that practice just because of the intention? Or does it become irrelevant at some point? That's a very good point. Let's look at it in this way. One of the aspects of being in particular religion, one of the nice and attractive aspects of that, is that the people who are in following that religion try to follow the same way of doing certain things in their life. Okay, I'm not talking about major things like, oh, try to be a good person. No, 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 not that. Just simple practices, like what you just said, eating. Okay, simple practices. It's it's one of one of the nice things about being in the same community of religious practices is that you are more or less we are doing this the, things the same way so you're veronica i'm farhad i'm coming from iran you're living in spain we greet each other with salam alaikum 
That's nice. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Not to say saying hello is wrong or it's good when we have this common way of talking, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, coming from two totally different cultures, I think still if we meet each other, you know, in family and getting together, still we'll find that, oh, there are many things that we are doing the same from where it is coming from practicing this religion. I'm not talking about obligatory things. Yes, we, we will all pray. But other than that, right, part of being a member of a religious community is to keep up these common practices and trying to together, be together like each other. That, that's nice. However, we need to understand that there are certain things in these religious practices that we would consider to be obligation. As I said, like prayer, like fasting, that is obligation. And then the rest of it is for us to keep things in the path of the Almighty and and be similar to each other in trying to do that. For those things, if somebody decides, okay, for whatever reason, I cannot do this or I cannot do that, it is still okay because overall we are doing things the same way. Now, you may decide, that person may decide, guys, I cannot eat with my right hand for whatever reason. That doesn't change this community of Muslims who are doing things together. So those Mm -hmm. minor things, individual, occasional things that people will not do, will not break that, that logic. So that's what I'm saying, that there's part of it that is obligation. I think if people want to argue that I'm following Sharia of the Prophet, then perhaps they need to follow those obligations. And then there's part of it that is not obligation. And as long as the whole community is trying to practice many of them, then I think that's the point being made. We should not worry about individual cases. Okay. Yeah, because it does create a unifying field. These these habits make you relate to people in a way that's very connective. Like I have a friend from Morocco and we are able to connect not only because of our personalities, but because we have certain practices and understandings that because she's Muslim and I don't have that necessarily with non-Muslims and having it's like a secret language, you know. You understand where they're coming from and the things that they're doing, they're doing with a good heart and a good intention. Hopefully. I mean, I would say most Muslims are. So, yes, I can see and I definitely feel the benefits of that. Okay. So just to close this chapter of our talk, make sure uh, we are providing as much information as possible. Because I based my understanding on the work of Javed Ahmed Ghamidi, I just want to say that if people are interested they can read about his detailed explanation about the sunnah and how to determine sunnah in the book Islam, A Comprehensive Introduction, chapter 2 in that book, Islam, A Comprehensive Introduction by Javed Ahmad Qamadi. The book is, of course, available for purchase, but you can also find it on internet, which obviously I'm not going to say how but you can just Google it and the PDF version of the book is also available on internet and people can find it from there. And it's in English. In English, yeah. I mean, the original book is called Mizan. Uh, It is in Urdu. Uh, And this is translation of that book by one of the students of Javed Ahmed Qamazi and a good friend of mine whose name is Shehzad Salim. 
Okay, so let's talk about hadiths a little bit then. What, yeah. what role do hadiths play in all this? Yeah. So I first want to just clarify something here that as soon as we say hadiths, in the mind of many Muslims, it will mean what the Prophet has said. Mm -hmm. So then when you say, well, hadith cannot be an independent source of understanding Islam, they immediately say, oh, so you are saying the saying of the Prophet cannot be independent source of understanding Islam. How can you say that? It's a Prophet. So this, the problem starts with understanding what actually hadith is. I see people very easy say, yeah, the Prophet said this, the Prophet said that, the Prophet said this, the Prophet said that. I always, when I see situations like this, sometimes I ask the person, excuse me, how old are you? And the person says, for instance, I'm 30, I'm 20, I'm 40. And I say, well, <clears throat> that suggests you weren't existing at the time of the Prophet. Mm -hmm. so how do you know that the Prophet said that? When you say the Prophet said that, that's very different from saying that, for instance, Veronica said that, right? We're talking about prophet. We're talking about a religious figure that we believe was appointed by God to lead a community. We need to be very careful when we attribute something to the prophet. We need to be very careful. The moment that I say the prophet said that, I have put a huge responsibility on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. I'm getting close to my old age, and um, I have been studied Islam for the last maybe 32, three years. I think I know a little bit about Hadith, and I know a little bit about the science of Hadith and Quran. I have never dared, Veronica, have never dared to say the Prophet said that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you ever have heard anything like that from me. Mm -hmm. I will say... It is narrated from the Prophet. And in fact, you corrected me once because I said in a previous show, the Prophet said, and you, and you corrected me, and you said that it's better to say that it is narrated. It is narrated. I mean, put the responsibility on the shoulder of the narrator, not on your own shoulder. What we need to understand is that um, people, uh, I should not be disrespectful, but some people underestimate how uncertain hadith is, or put it the other way, overestimate the reliability of hadith. Yes. Open, open any book of hadith, even open it from the book of Bukhari and Muslim, that Sunni Muslims believe is the most reliable book. Open it. Look at any hadith that you want to check. Okay, let, let me do this just now. So this is my book of Bukhari, okay? This is the eighth volume, and uh, I'm just open it randomly, okay? So the hadith says, the invocation of any one of you is granted by God if he does not show impatience by saying, I invoke God, but my request has not been granted. Okay, so there's a hadith. Now, Let's, let's not talk about the meaning of it and what that actually means. You read this hadith, and you immediately say, oh, the Prophet had said this. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to the start of the hadith, in particular the Arabic, because normally in English translation, uh, the whole chain of narrators are not there. It says, Haddesna Abdullah ibn Yusuf, Ukhbirna 
Malik, an Ibn Shahab, an Abi Ubaid, Mawla Ibn Azhar, an an Abi Huraira, an Rasulullah Qala. So basically, Abdullah Ibn Yusuf has heard this from Malik, who has heard this from Ibn Shahab, who has heard this from Abi Ubaid, who has heard this from Abu Huraira, who has heard this from the Prophet. And Bukhari, the author of the book, apparently has get that directly or indirectly from Abdullah ibn Yusuf. So you see, in every generation, there was one person who has said that. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, we can look at the other versions of this hadith, and we may find that, no, actually, it is not that in each generation only one person has said that. There are more people who have said that. But I can tell you, normally you find that at best two or three other people have said that in each generation. How reliable is this way of quoting from the Prophet? i give you an example just now. We are living right now at the time of technology, internet and social media and all that. Don't you see that even today there is a disagreement about somebody contemporary whether he has said this or he has said that, even today, about somebody who is living at our time, we don't know whether he has said this or he has said that. Exactly. How can we judge 1,400 years ago, it was actually the prophet who said all that, word by word. We cannot make that judgment. Therefore, we need to be cautious and we say, it is narrated from the prophet in the book of Bukhari. God knows best. Yeah, and we have to consider also that these collections of, of hadith uh, came, I don't know how many years after the death of the prophet, but even the chain of narration he just read was quite long. There were like five people and came through Abu Huraira. Abu Huraira was the companion who had the most amount of recorded narrations or narrations that were attributed to him and yet he spent uh, the least amount of time with the prophet than many of the other quoted companions such as Aisha so so all these hadiths are attributed to Abu Huraira and each of the hadith collectors who created these volumes I mean a massive collection of which some of them were weak chain of narration some of them had strong chain of narrations, but I don't think that a lot of, okay, I'm saying a lot, of, I actually don't know, I haven't done like a survey, but from what I've seen, that people are aware of the intricacies of Hadith literature. And, you know, Hadith, sayings of the Prophet started out as an amorphous field of people saying things that would eventually be collected and recorded, but this is a, a process that we can't fully rely on. It's very useful, but um, it's good to understand that it's not a body of work like the Quran that was memorized and validated by a large group of people so that it can be substantially referred to as authentic, whereas hadiths are not that. That's why there are different hadith collectors and books and so on. Yes. Uh, I mean, let me just use the example that you gave, like, for instance, Abu Huraira. 
there are discussions about ahadis that are coming from Abu Huraira. So, for instance, Shia Muslims do not consider him to be very reliable. Of course, Sunni Muslims do consider him to be very reliable. There are some narrations that suggest that some of the companions were not quite happy about the number of narrations that were reported by Abu Huraira. Then again, there are speculations that many hadiths could be attributed to him without him really saying those ones, knowing that he was one of the companions of the Prophet. And this is not this place for me to say anything about Abu Huraira. But all I'm trying to say is that these are just examples. I mean, we read the hadiths and we say, oh, the Prophet said that. We never paid much attention to the fact that, hey, this has come to us by individuals in each generation. And these individuals were human beings. They were not directed by God to be corrected if they make a mistake. There could be individuals who were not very good in memory. There could be individuals who had political intentions. I'm not saying Abu Huraira was any of these categories. I'm not talking about any particular narrator here. But all I'm saying is that yeah, these were just simple individuals. Okay. So then I want to reach to the point that why I said hadith cannot be independent source of understanding Islam. Now, one thing I want to clarify very quickly is that what I'm saying, and as far as I know, what you are saying is not that, oh, hadith is of no use. So we are anti-hadith. We are munkar al-hadith, as they say in Arabic. No, I think we appreciate the importance of hadith. Hadith carries lots of information. Okay, mm -hmm. so how, how can we say it's not important? Of course, it is important. Mm -hmm. However, because the way that it has reached us is not as reliable as the way that Quran has reached us, and is not as reliable as the way that Sunnah has reached us, therefore we need to apply some criteria to it to understand every individual hadith, whether we can rely on it or we should be more cautious about it. One criteria is to look at the narrators. So I just read a hadith for you. Okay, so if I open this book again and another hadith, and this one, for instance, gives names like Yahya and Humaid. We can look at the book of Rajal, which is book of people who have narrated hadith. And in these books, the life of these individuals have been explained, and it has been explained whether these individuals were trusted individuals or were not trusted individuals. This science is called science of Rajal. Rajal means men maybe because most of the narrators of hadith were men. There's a science of rijal, the science of men, who basically means science of narrators of hadith. That's one way of doing it. However, there are some difficulties there. Because number one, many times you find an individual, and then you find that there are different views about it. Abu Huraira would be one of them. Ibn Shahab, that I narrated that hadith, and one of the narrators was Ibn, Ibn Shahab. Ibn Shahab al-Zuhri, he's another one. You find some very good words about him by some scholars, and you find not very good words about him by some other scholars. So you find that disagreement in for many of these narrators. Number, the other problem is that from where are we getting these explanations about whether somebody's trusted or not? We are getting it from yet other human beings 
who themselves were not guided by the Almighty. So how can we trust those human beings? You see how difficult this is? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm asking Veronica, Veronica, how can I trust John? And Veronica says, well, because Bob says John is trustable. And I say, well, how can I trust Bob? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so that, that's the thing. So I'm not saying that these scholars had ill intentions, but they were human beings. And for sure, they, they couldn't know exactly, you know, back to back how these individuals were. They just wrote things that they had heard about. Them. They themselves have heard about this particular narrator by the means of other individuals who provided that information. So it is just compilation of non-reliable content at the back of non-reliable content, just piling up like that. So what I'm trying to say is that although science of Rajan, science of uh, looking at the narrators themselves, is a very interesting science, very extensive science. And in fact, I, I, I like it a lot. So I used, when I was younger, I used to just go and try to find how reliable a hadith is based on science of Rajal only. It, it's very interesting practice. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is, that itself is not very reliable. And let me say something else to you. Is it not possible that somebody is known to be a bad person, uh, but yet happens to say, to narrate something true from another person? Mm -hmm. And is it not possible that somebody is uh, is considered to be a very reliable person with a very good memory, but happens to make a mistake and st state mm -hmm. something uh, totally wrong from, mm -hmm. from, from, from another person? So the science of Rajal, it is interesting, but it is not that reliable itself. The most that we can say is that if based on the science of Rajal, we find that a hadith is wrong, then it is wrong. Most probably it is wrong. That's the best we can say. Still, there can be possibility that it is still right, but just to remain cautious and not to associate something to the prophet that he never said that, I think it is safe to say that if the science of Rijal says something is wrong, then we should not pay attention to it, uh, to that hadith. However, if the science of Rajal says something is correct, in what, to me, that's just the beginning of the story. That, that's just the first filtering that we have passed. The other way of understanding the reliability of hadith goes to another science. They call it science of diraya. So here, diraya in this context means to understand the meaning of the hadith. Science of Diraya says, okay, you are done with the Rijal, you, have, you are done with the narrators, now look at the content of the Hadith. Is there something in the content itself that can tell you that this Hadith can, cannot be right? For instance, if the content is not self-consistent, so the first sentence says something is good and the second sentence says the same thing is bad, well, that then can may suggest that the Hadith is not right. Is the content is saying something that goes against obvious facts of life? The scholars of Islam, those who are in, in this uh, sort of science of uh, content of hadith, some of them have mentioned this, that if what the hadith is suggesting goes against some of the facts of life, 
we cannot accept the hadith. For instance, I'm not saying we have a hadith like this, but just to give a very extreme example. For instance, imagine you find a hadith that says, uh, sun, sun rises from the west and sets at the east. Well, that hadith cannot be true. Now, even if you show me that all the narrators are right, that cannot be true. Because for sure the Prophet would not say something that goes against the facts of life that was known at the time as well. Now, there is one part of this science of Diraya that unfortunately not enough attention has been paid to it. And this is this part that can help us to understand whether a hadith should be relied on or not. And that is to look at the hadith in the light of the Quran, whether what this hadith is saying is in line with the Quran or if it is not in line with the Quran. Please note I'm using the word in line. That is beyond just not being in disagreement with the Quran. If a hadith says something that is in disagreement with the Quran, then in my understanding it cannot be considered at all as a saying of the Prophet. But I'm saying even something more strict than that. It has to be in line with the Quran. The suggestion that it is making needs to be in line with the spirit of the Quran and with the information that the Quran is giving us. Okay? So if the Quran, for instance, says that, for instance, um, do not do not rely so too much on, on shafa'a and intercession. And then the hadith suggests that, no, you, you need to relax because the Prophet will do shafa for all the Muslims, so you will be fine. That is not in line with the spirit of the Quran. The Quran that says everybody is responsible for what they are doing. This part of the science of Diraya, unfortunately, has not been entertained and taken into consideration as strong as it has to be in the scholarship of Islam. And I say scholarship of Islam because I think it's something general. Shia and Sunni, both of them. I'm not talking about any particular group. And it is this part that is then the explanation for when I say hadith cannot be an independent source of understanding Islam. Can it be a source of understanding Islam? Yes, but not an independent source. So what is it that hadith is depending on? Quran and Sunnah, with the definition that I gave. Hadith depends on those. So if you read a narration from the Prophet, look at it, compare it with the information and the general spirit that you get from the Quran, Look at it from the practices that the Sunnah has established. If it is in line with them, then inshallah, hopefully, that is coming from the Prophet. And we can say, yes, we will still say it is narrated from the Prophet, but we will say it with a little bit more confidence. If it goes against the general knowledge and spirit of the Quran, or against what the Sunnah tells us, then we cannot accept that hadith as reliable. Again, this is the meaning of what I said, that Quran and Sunnah, after intellect, Quran and Sunnah are independent sources of understanding Islam, but Hadith is dependent source of understanding Islam. Dependent meaning it depends on Quran and the Sunnah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Has the hadith ever been used independently to make oh, yes. rulings or laws? Well, of course. Unfortunately, what you see is that, because what I said, I said that hadith needs to be understood in the light of the Quran. Unfortunately, this relationship has been made reverse in much of the scholarship of the Islam. People try to understand Quran based on hadith. It is as if we are saying, as if we are saying, Quran is depending so is a dependent source of understanding Islam, and hadith is independent source of understanding Islam, and that would be a very very uh, dangerous way of trying to understand Islam because we are mismatching and displacing the sources of understanding Islam. Mm -hmm. The very fact that, as you said, some people think that Hadith and Sunnah are the same shows that for many, many ages, ages, years, people have looked at Hadith as an independent source of understanding Islam. And that cannot be true. So just to summarize what I just said, the question is not whether Hadith is useful or not useful. Hadith is useful. The question is not whether what Prophet has said can be relied on or not. Of course it can be relied on. The problem is, Hadith is not necessarily what the Prophet said. Therefore, Hadith is dependent source of understandings. Okay. And it depends on two sources that are much more reliable than Hadith. Those two sources are Quran and the Sunnah. Okay, well, thank you so much for that in-depth explanation about Sunnah and Hadiths. I think that was very useful. So thank you so much. Thank you, Veronica. And I want to just, just suggest that because I think this episode that we had, which was a long episode, we went a little bit into some technical aspects, unlike some of the other episodes. If our listeners would like any clarification on any of the points or if they have any questions or any views that they want to share with us and no uh, comments about it, it will be wonderful if they get in touch and, and let us know those things. Sure. Yes, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We welcome feedback at onelightchat at gmail.com. That's onelightchat, O-N-E-L-I-G-H-T-C-H-A-T at gmail.com. Or leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash Veronica Polo. Peace and blessings.